0: hello welcome to the revive for the journey podcast where we give you this week's message from Cove church we pray that it blesses you and helps you grow deeper in your journey with Christ enjoy well hey there Cove church it is so great to be with you if we've not met my name's Brandon and today I want to I want to um, talk about the Bible and maybe something a little bit different rather than preaching from the Bible I want to Tell the story of the Bible, or talk about the Bible. I think many times, that uh, you know, when we preach from the Bible, and we should, it assumes a few things. It assumes maybe we're all in agreement, we're all on the same page in terms of, you know, can I trust the Bible, uh, the Bible's reliability, and the Bible's purpose, and so. Today, we'll teach about the Bible rather than preaching from the Bible. Last week, Pastor Aaron, in kind of this mini-series building up to Lent, this small three-part series, what is Lent? Pastor Aaron unpacked that last week. Today, what is the Bible? And then next week, essentially answering the question, how do I read the Bible? We'll have a special uh, guest speaker next week, and so I would encourage you not to miss it. The idea is this. That as we as Pastor Aaron mentioned, multiple ways. He said it multiple ways last week. This idea of giving up something physical for the sake of something, Spiritual, And so we believe that, you know, as you give up, maybe it is food or maybe it's social media or maybe it's Netflix or politics or sports or, you know, whatever it is, as I turn away from that, not in some misplaced sense of asceticism or, you know, works righteousness, like I'm so holy, it isn't about that. It's about giving this up so, so that in this time of preparation, this 40 days of preparation through Lent, as we look toward the celebration of Easter, that I would give myself to the Lord, more wholeheartedly in some areas and we believe that one of those areas that many will turn to is the bible and so we wanted to give that some attention over the next couple of couple of weeks but we didn't want to just leave you encouraged you know to go to go read read the bible without offering some tools and so again you're not going to want to miss our special guest speaker next week uh, I brought some bibles with me and uh, perhaps emblematic of what the bible has meant to you in your life and so I have uh, a really large, heavy Bible. I had to haul, haul this to work today. Uh, maybe is emblematic of the Bible being used in your life to beat you over the head or maybe to control you. It's also an authorized King James Version, and so maybe that would be emblematic of almost like a foreign language, uh, just something that was really hard to understand for you, never really made sense to you. <clears throat> I have a an older Bible that was given to my great grandfather, uh, Christmas of 1912. And uh, so maybe this would be emblematic of the Bible. Uh, it's just kind of an old relic that doesn't make sense or really isn't relevant today for your life. I, I also have a children's Bible that I brought from home from when our kids were, were little. And uh, maybe you were introduced to the Bible, but it never really grew out of its infancy in, in your spiritual life walk so i so i don't know where you're at some of you may have a wonderful beautiful relationship with the bible i think i do know this many of you were introduced to the bible as as a child or you were introduced to the bible by an adult who was introduced to the bible as a child and and, and here's what i found That while many people know the stories in the Bible, they don't know the stories of the Bible. And if we don't know the story of the Bible, it's easier to discount the stories in the Bible. And the reality is how you got your Bible is not how the world received its Bible. You received your Bible most likely kind of chaptered, mapped, wrapped, maybe with gold scroll with your, you know, your name on the front and soul of fame and, and, and a bow. That is not how early Christians, that is not how the church received the Bible. And I love, I love history. Uh, those of you who know me well, you you know this about me. As I look over the course of my life, the classes that I did well in, discussions maybe that I engaged in more wholeheartedly, were were discussions about history, almost regardless of the history that was being taught. I just, I loved it. I think mainly because I love context. I love the answer to the question, you know, how did we get here, both good and bad? Uh, just, it just fascinates me, not the least of which is church history and the history of the Bible. And so when I, when I was in seminary, I made the mistake of raising my hand in church history class. And we were talking about the, the origins of the Bible and and I asked some question, my professor said, you know, Brandon, that'd probably be a great, you know, research paper. And so that's what I did. I wrote I wrote this key research paper, at least key for me in, in my studies on the Bible. Here's what I want us to know today. Here's what I want us to remember. That for at least the first 300 years, more likely 400 years of the church, there was no, the early church, there was no, the Bible. To be sure they had these letters that were written by you know, some guy named Paul and maybe some guy named Peter and they, you know, or and they would circulate them around. They viewed them as, you know, um, an interesting study of this guy named Jesus, um, um, authoritative. They were good instruction for life, but there was it, it wasn't put together. Uh, it was there was no the Bible. They were holding on to something else. They were, and that's important for that very fact, they were holding on to something else as the foundation of their faith. I want to circle back to that in a minute. But because we don't talk about the Bible's history, which speaks to its reliability, people, even today, uh, I hear this from time to time. They'll object, you know, Pastor Brandon, we, we can't take the Bible literally. I mean, come on. Uh, really what they're saying is something like that's generally code for something like, like this. The Bible is not entirely trustworthy uh, because some parts, if not many or most parts, are one of three things or all three. Number one, they're scientifically impossible. They're historically unreliable and or culturally regressive. Come on, Pastor Brandon, really, the, the misogynistic treatment of women, slavery, we, we we can't take it seriously. And many times, Cove Church, this isn't is in my notes, but... Many times what's happened there is we're trying to force 21st century mores, culture, and values into an ancient context. And when we do that, we generally land in the wrong place. Uh, If you spent time at the university, uh, you may have run across maybe a, a Literature professor who uh, didn't take too kind, kindly to the New Testament, and and I, I'm not, I don't want to demonize anyone. I probably had a very similar professor. In fact, we we need to sit in those classes. The Bible can stand up to scrutiny, but but the the message of the New Testament may have sounded like this. Just see if it if it sounds familiar from your college days. You know, the the New Testament is kind of this cobbled together, um, you know, string of stories. These these. Made-up stories about a, a prophet named Jesus. We don't deny that a guy named Jesus lived, and it sprung up around the Mediterranean rim, and it, and it morphed and changed in order to kind of gain control and inspire people to a movement, and, and we were, and they were able to create Jesus and create this movement into the movement that the the culture needed. At the time, and because of that, we can't really know who the historical Jesus was. It, there's there's no, really no way to know if the Bible is is reliable because of that. So there's this setup, Coach Let me give you a f- few quotes that people have given about the Bible along the way. Mark Twain uh, said this: "It ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me; it's the parts that I do understand." Albert Einstein, a bright mind, said this, the word of God is for me nothing more than the expression and product of human weaknesses. The Bible, a collection of honorable, but still primitive legends, which are nevertheless pretty childish. No interpretation, no matter how subtle, can for me change this. Wow, it's a strong indictment of the Bible. Another complex mind, bright mind, Richard Dawkins in the God Delusion, well-known atheist and well-known critic of of Christianity, creationism, intelligent design. He said this, to be fair, the Bible is not systematically evil, but just plain weird. As you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved, he says, by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists, unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. Wow, another strong indictment from a pretty bright mind. The theologian Frank Sinatra said this, alcohol may may be man's worst enemy, but the Bible says to love your enemy. Pastor Irwin McManus said this, the Bible is not an antiquated text. The scriptures are the the text that will lead us into the future. And Spurgeon said, said this, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. And finally, Augustine said this, the holy scriptures are our letters from home. I love that. This is not our home. The Holy Scriptures are letters from home. So here's our big idea today, Coach Pastor Brandon, what do you want me to really understand today? It's this, the Bible is. What is the Bible? Answering that question. The Bible is the story of God. It's reliable, and it's alive because Jesus is alive. Let me say it again. The story of God. The Bible is the story of God. It's reliable, and it's alive because Jesus is is alive. Hebrews 4 and verse 12 says this, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of morrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So Cove Church, any any ancient text, any ancient literary work has to go through a battery of tests in order for it to be deemed reliable this is in broad terms generally known as textual criticism there's there's something called the you know the internal evidence test in other words does it hold up under its own weight and what it what it declares kind of as, as truth or fact there's the external evidence test what do other works and historians say about you, you know that particular work or or the events surrounding that work, does it hold up there? There's, there's the biographical test, which analyzes um, existing or extant copies of manuscripts to determine their reliability. So let's just take a look at this briefly. Let's just do a survey to see how the Bible stands up to some of the scrutiny. And I wanna start with contradictions. I think this is a big one for some people. You know, Pastor Brandon, aren't there contradictions in the Bible? Isn't the Bible full of contradictions? Let me illustrate this, there's one New Testament theologian, a, a, a liberal theologian, and I don't use that, Cove Church, in terms of, I'm not talking about politics, I'm talking about theology. Uh, his name is Bart Ehrman, and he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, The Story Behind Who Changed the Bible and Why, interesting title. And he makes the claim that there are 400,000 heirs in the Bible, wow, and because he has, you know, I think some letters after his name, and he's, and he's a bright mind, many people have believed him without really digging into his research. In fact, there have been some who have kind of questioned and doubted their faith. Here's the reality. His number is not based on 400,000 different errors, rather small variations in, in spelling, the Greek and the Hebrew, depending on what manuscript you're looking at. Further, his number is incredibly misleading and Ehrman knows it. Uh, it's not based on 400,000 errors, rather the number of copies that have been made of that particular manuscript. So let, let me give you an example. Let's just pull out Matthew 16:4. He finds a uh, misspelling and because there are 40 manuscripts, he would say that constitutes 40 heirs. So let's follow this logic. Ehrman writes a book, and we find 16 heirs, and because he wrote 100,000 copies, we get to say that there's 1.6 million heirs in Ehrman's book, to which all of us would say, Pastor Brandon, you can't do that. It's not fair. Exactly, but this is what he's done with scripture. In fact, Cove Church, Pastor Brandon, is, is Erman completely out to lunch? You're not answering the question, are you know, are there contradictions? He's not completely out to lunch. There are slight variations from manuscript to manuscript, misspellings here, variations there, but none that are large chunks, none that are long-running narratives, and none, Cove Church, that have bearing or are central or detrimental to the core of Christian doctrine. None. The reality is there are two largely disputed or mostly disputed passages in the New Testament and scholars in no way have attempted to to cover them up. In fact, if you look them up, let me give them to you, Mark 16, 9 through 20, and then John seven fifty three through chapter 8, verse 11, both about 10 or 11 verses long. And if you look them up, in most Bibles, you're going to see like in big, blaring, full cap block letters, it's something like this, some earliest manuscripts do not include it. So they want you to know that this set of manuscripts, generally earlier manuscripts don't have it. These later manuscripts do have it. So no one's hiding anything, and neither one of those disputed passages, again, have any bearing on the core of Christian doctrine. Here's what I want you to know before we leave this point, go Church. The transmission of the Bible, those who copied the manuscripts took it seriously. It was a calling. It was their life's work. It was not some hobby. In the New Testament, generally, we would call them scribes, and they were a special brand of scholar who would write chapters and chapters of text so that others can read them. And they didn't do it in the dark. In fact, many of them had two other scribes, one over each shoulder. And if they made a mistake, they would have to initial it and each of the other scribes would have to initial it. And if they didn't, if you can imagine this, that work would have to be destroyed and they would have to start over. It was incredibly painstaking and it took a lot of time. They took it seriously. Maybe that helps some of you with this idea of contradictions in the Bible. How about this reliability, manuscript reliability, the biographical test, again, studies manuscripts of a particular work. And so it looks at the date that it was written, generally referred to as the autograph. And then it looks at copies or manuscripts of that original work. And then it it tries to answer at least a couple of questions. Number one, how many manuscripts do we have? The more, the better. And what is this span of time. Is it 50 years? Is it 100 years? Is it 1000 years? And the closer we have these coming together, generally, the more reliable. So I'm not an attorney, but in in a court of law, uh, what is taken more seriously? When I, when I memorialize something right after an event happens and I'm able to recall it from these notes that I made right after it happened versus if I waited two or three months, right? I think a judge is going to look at that. A jury is going to look at that closely. Uh, in, in similar fashion, I realize maybe that metaphor, that, that example breaks down. But this is what, in part, the span of time and the number of manuscripts, the, the biographical test looks at. So let me, let me give you a few examples. Thucydides. History is the work. Uh, the date written was 460 to 400 B.C. The earliest manuscript was third century B.C., so about 200 years after the autograph date. We have a span of 200 years and we have about 96 extant or existing manuscripts, copies of that original work. Okay? Historians would say reliable. We go to Caesar's Gallic Wars, written between 144 B.C., earliest manuscripts, n- manuscripts 9th century AD, so about 1,000 a, a years afterward, and we have 251 manuscripts. Uh, literary critics would say, reliable. A third one, Homer's Iliad, written about 800 B.C., earliest manuscript, 400 B.C., so about 400 years, and we have a whopping 1,800 manuscripts. Critics would say, reliable. Now, we come to the New Testament, just by way of comparison. It was written between 50 and 100 AD, so kind of the autograph date or dates of these of these letters, earliest manuscripts of 130 AD, and, and even earlier, within 50 years of when it was written. And we have 5,000 838 Greek New Testament manuscripts and 18,524 Greek New Testament early translations, leaving us with the number most scholars would estimate around 25 to 26,000 existing or extant manuscripts of the New Testament. By the way, we haven't even mentioned some 42,000 scrolls and codices of you know, the Old Testament because we're dealing just with the New Testament. Friends, most scholars would agree that the earliest writings were the Apostle Paul. Some within, maybe within 15 to 20 years of Christ's death and resurrection. Even the most liberal historians, again, I don't use that politically. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, kind of history and theology would contend. That they, they would admit that the Bible was written within 30 to 50 years of the life of Jesus. No historian would consider the Iliad unreliable. And yet the closest manuscript we have was 400 years later. No historian would consider the Gallic Wars unreliable. And yet the the closest that we have of a manuscript is a thousand years. And here we have the New Testament, the Bible written within 50 years, manuscripts within 50 years and an overwhelming 25,000 manuscripts. The Bible you hold in your hand The Bible you turn to perhaps for the first time in a long time this Lent season is overwhelmingly reliable. Before we apply, Cove before we apply any type of supernatural element in teaching to the Bible, but when we finally do combine the spiritual and kind of these basic historical testing, is there any doubt why the writer of Hebrews would say the word of God is living and powerful? The writing style. The writing style, and we'll wind down. Maybe something that you haven't considered before. Uh, Number one, the Bible, the New Testament. This and this speaks to its reliability and believability. Number one is far too counterproductive to be made up. Here's what I mean. Again, the working theory of critics is this: that the Bible was made up to to help. Assist in establishing power to kind of create this narrative to create Jesus and the story of Christianity into the story that culture needed it to be, uh, and and so you know, and if we're going to do that, we got to paint it in an inspiring light. We, we got to paint it in a victorious light. Here's the problem with that theory: the Bible doesn't do that. It's it. If you're gonna if you're gonna make up a story. About and, and have your main character crucified by his enemies. How inspiring is that? It's not inspiring at all. And, and then you're going to make one another one of the main characters some some you know uh, kind of ambivalent you know feckless uh, without any character loudmouth guy named Peter who denied the main character. None of that is inspiring. It's far too counterproductive. The beauty of the Bible. Go church in my humble opinion, is just that. That it tells the story of men and women, frail, faulty, messed up, murderers, adulterers, deniers, doubters, that God got a hold of, redeemed their life, changed their lives, and uses them. And if God can use them, God can use me. Number two under this idea of writing style is that the literary form is far too detailed to be legend. Here's what I mean by that. In Mark 4, we're told that Jesus was asleep on a cushion in the hole of a boat. You remember the story, the the storm on the sea. In John 21, remember when Jesus, you know, fed breakfast, he made breakfast for the disciples after his resurrection. We're told that Peter was 100 yards out to sea on the boat. And then he brought in not 150 fish, not 160 fish. He brought in 153 fish. Pastor Brandon, what's the point? Here's the problem. There's a huge difference between ancient fiction and modern fiction. Modern fiction is realistic. It includes details and dialogues. It reads like a close-up eyewitness account. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but this genre of fiction only, only developed over the last 300 years. In other ancient texts, this is why when you read other ancient texts written you know, in and around, including the time of the Bible, they're high and remote. You would never read in the Iliad or Beowulf or whatever that you saw the main character, for instance, you know, noticing the, the, the rain dripping down on the windowsill. It, it's too, it's too, that's too close. So here's here's what had to happen. Either someone from the 18th or 19th or 20th century got in their little time machine and went back to the first century and thought our New Testament writers had to write or they were actually recording what they saw. What's the real point? Maybe the twist today as we wind down Cove Church. Here's where I want to land. It's in celebration. Remember, I told you that for the, for the first 350 to 400 years, at least there was no the Bible. Christ's followers were hanging on to something else through all the death and persecution that they faced. Cove Church, I, I think maybe some of us are familiar with like um, Nero's persecution of the church, but if I were to describe, there are other persecutions, I think far worse. The Diocletian persecution that, that exploded around the Mediterranean Rim communities. If I were to describe what early Christ followers, what happened to them, many of you would get queasy. And yet what, what would cause them with boldness and courage, without the Bible to stand in the face of that type of persecution. It's the resurrection of Jesus. It's Jesus. Brandon, what's the point? Why have you shifted from the reliability of the Bible to the resurrection? The Bible didn't produce Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus produced the Bible Cove Church. If Jesus doesn't come up out of the grave, we have no Bible. No one cares. At least for this length of time about a dead prophet, a good man as awesome as that is. But Jesus robbed the grave. He came up out of the grave. He defeated death. And and It was then that as people engaged with Jesus, they began to write about him in the form of our New Testament letters. That's what inspired the New Testament. And then Gentiles coming to faith, when they they met Jesus, they could care less about Jewish history. They could care less about Hebrew scriptures But as they became enamored with the risen Christ, this Jewish rabbi, then they did, not for cultural purposes or historical reasons, but for Christological reasons. And it really is the same for us today. We might might love Jewish history and that sort of thing, but we find Jesus in the Old Testament. The Bible is the story of God, specifically fulfilled and reflected in Jesus, and it all hinged and hinges on his resurrection. Cove Church, the Bible is the story of God. It is unmistakably reliable, and it's alive because Jesus is alive. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. To stay connected with all things Cove Church, visit our website, covechurchpnw.com, or on all social media platforms, at CoveChurchPnW. PNW. We'll see you next time.